thank you for a huge year on the Words and Nerds podcast. In 2021, the podcast had more than 250 conversations with authors, publishers, agents, booksellers, podcasters, and other amazing bookish people in approximately 200 episodes. There are three spin-offs, Ben Hobson's Burgers, Beers and Books, Josie Layton's A Different Page, and Nathan J. Phillips's The Regular Takeover. We had 22 takeover guests and growing, a summer series takeover, a NaNoWriMo series, crossovers, and the incredibly popular Publishing Insider series. The podcast appeared at literary festivals. We hosted live streams at bookshops for book launches, including the much-loved Four Continents for Critics. This holiday series is all about you, the listeners. Enjoy the most listened-to episodes of 2021 to get you through the holiday period. Stay safe and read more books. Danny, Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a good spell uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction went, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day, and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. Who wouldn't want to celebrate the Words and Nerds fabulous podcast? Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm author Vanessa McCausland, and I'm thrilled to be guest hosting today's episode with someone you'll know from her own stints as a guest host here, author Maya Linnell. We're going to chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. May has just released her new Australian rural romance, life-lit novel, Magpie's Bend. And honestly, I read this book during lockdown, and it was an absolute hug of a book. I immediately wanted to move to the country. It's set in the small country town of Bridgefield, where bush nurse Lara McIntyre and journalist Toby Paxton are thrust into the limelight when an accident puts the heart of their community in jeopardy and locals must attempt to save the town's beloved general store. Let me introduce Maya. She gathers inspiration from her own rural upbringing and the small community she's always lived in. Magpie's Bend is her third best-selling novel following Bottle Brush Creek and Wildflower Ridge. A former country journalist and radio host, Maya also blogs for Romance Writers Australia, loves baking up a storm, tending to her rambling garden, and raising three little bookworms, which doesn't sound amazing at all. <laughs> um, hi, Maya. It's so lovely that we get to chat. Thank you very much for that lovely intro, Vanessa. It's wonderful to be here chatting with you today, too. Oh, honestly, your your life just seems so idyllic. Um, you live on this beautiful farm. You have baby lambs, which you put up on your Instagram. Um, you grow your own food and flowers. You bake amazing desserts. Um, it seems like it. all of this sort of comes through in your writing. How much of your own lived experience on your farm is infused into these books? Oh, thank you, Vanessa. Look, it's one of those things that I never get sick of taking photos or writing scenes um, about the beautiful things that we have going on in our life. Now, I can't quite claim it's a farm. It's, we've only got eight and a half acres, so it's not a productive. We don't have crops. Yeah. <laughs> 
so we, so we don't have huge crops um, and massive farming machinery or anything. We've got an old tractor that's about oh, probably 50 years old um, and a small assortment of animals. But we absolutely love it here. It's, it's a really nice spot to be in southwest Victoria. We're tucked in close to the coast. And you're, you're right, we really enjoy having those animals keeping us company and that ability to just wander the paddocks. And throughout the story of Magpie's Bend, there's so many different bits where I've just plucked out. Um, you know, you've got the instances where Lara's out running in the morning and it's dark and she mm. can just hear the cows in the paddocks and she calls out, and, good morning, cows. You know, she's running down that deserted road. It's just her and the cows and the birds in the morning and, and her Kelpie Basil. So I certainly have been guilty of saying hello to the cows when I'm out for a morning walk. I just walk pictured at- you. I pictured that it was you saying that. I could hear your voice, Maya. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I do. I throw in all these different little bits that just make me smile and resonate and things that I think that hopefully if someone's picking up the book, whether they're in lockdown or whether they're, you know, having a, a tough day or a tough week or a tough month that, maybe perhaps it might just bring them a smile too. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it did warm your heart. It absolutely did. It's such a gorgeous story. Um, and you managed to create these characters who are, they have flaws, but they're so likeable. Um, and to me, that is an absolute challenge because you need flaws to propel your story forward. Um, and yet your character's, sort of have the darkness and the light how do you manage to how how do you manage to make them so likable and beautiful oh thank you well there's been times when I've written at during the writing of each book where I've struggled with the characters and thought oh you know this 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 one's just too prickly and Lara had that problem in the first book and I had to you know, really think about how I was going to work on her throughout that first story, Wildflower Ridge, because she comes across as quite harsh and quite, you know, straight down the line. She'll tell you she's not happy Mm. with something. And she was quite a polarising character in that first story. And I got feedback from people about, oh, I didn't like that, Lara. And then we see in the second book, Bottle Brush Creek, she mellows a bit. Um, You learn more of her as a um, a family-orientated woman and, and... the different things that she's got going on in her life. And, of course, in Magpie's Bend, we're straight into everything's from Lara's perspective. So you get to see yeah. her struggles, her challenges, her self-doubt, um, as well as some of her achievements. And, you know, she's a distance runner. She can knock off 10Ks, 20Ks in the morning while everyone else is still sitting in bed. Um, yeah. <laughs> she can, you know, dress a leg ulcer or handle a yoga class. Um, or a pregnant mums and bubs group without even batting an eyelid. So she's got all of these different little things that kind of put her together to make her who, who she is and the resilience of the, the different challenges that she's been through. So I think it's just nice to kind of pull those different, those highs, those lows, mm-hmm. the strengths and the weaknesses and, and kind of just massage them into shape and, and voila, there's, there's a character. Yeah, she felt really rounded um, and... Um, there was that there there is that sense of slight prickle about her or the straight down the line nature of her um and you could see that that was in a way the thing that distanced her from people and that 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 was her journey that well that's her journey to sort of you know 
become more open to people. But, um, yeah, it felt really organic that um that progression in her character um and yeah it was really well balanced and I felt like her relationship with her daughter Evie as well um made her very relatable just how much she loved her daughter um and you wrote teenagers really well um how do you do you have like nieces and nephews that are that age or how did you manage that oh thanks Vanessa it is one of those tricky things teenagers are a force onto themselves, aren't they? So I guess I tried to think of the different things, um, you know, memories from my own teenage years of things that would really send you over the edge, you know, that as an adult wouldn't worry me and different dynamics with uh, my friends that have children of that age, just kind of watching the little balances and the, the different things that will really spark them off or bring them together. So it's kind of nice to yeah, I guess have a little look into the future because I have two girls as well. So <laughs> that'll yeah, be me. It's coming. Teenagers. <laughs> we'll have a house yeah, full of teenagers. It's interesting because <clears throat> I think when we were teenagers, things were really different to teens now. Um, and But I, th- I thought that you captured the contemporary teen really well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because that's always the worry, isn't it? Like um, we can draw on our own memories of being that age, but I feel like this new generation is just so different from us in many ways. Um, And all your teenagers are quite resilient. They're at boarding school and they're quite independent. Um, Yeah, but I guess a lot of teens in the bush do go to boarding school, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I've got quite a few friends that have gone to boarding school, Um, my husband included. He went from, I think he was maybe 12 or 13. And, you know, you get that instant growing up, whether you like it or not, you've got to take care of your Mm -hmm. washing. Um, You've got decisions to make about how you interact with the the people in your room and things like that. So I think there's a whole slew of things that I've only just touched on the tip of the iceberg. But I do think that today's teenagers you know, generally are a bit more robust and resilient in a, in a lot of different ways to say we were. And then in mm. other factors, they've got that, um, you know, they don't have the innocence, I think, perhaps that we did. No, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, all of your books revolve around the one family and the three sisters. Um, did you start off knowing that you were going to progress through the family or did that evolve with each book? Yeah, right from the start, Vanessa, when I was writing the first draft, um, I'm one of four children. So I thought, well, it's pretty natural to put um, four children into my book because I understand that dynamic pretty well. And then when it got to the stage where I'd written my first draft, I wanted to think about who I was going to pitch it to. Uh, I'd read stories about people getting multi-book contracts. And of course, that was certainly my aim to try and not just have one book published and that was the end of the show. I was really keen to be able to um, extend my lifespan as an author. So the very first contact that I made with my publisher, Annette at Alan Unwin, I said to her, look, I have four sisters and I plan on writing a book on each of them, each told from a different time in their life and a different perspective. It's not just four books rehashing the same scenario. Um, and so that was right early on. I knew that I was going to do that. And then it was just a matter of which sister in which order, which is, yeah, it's fun because I didn't want really young characters because, you know, I've just turned 40. I don't Mm. love reading about characters in their 
20s that are falling in love. I kind of like that more rounded, um, more relatable to me type of stage of life. But it does make it tricky by the time you get to that fourth book uh, and I'm writing about the eldest sister in the fourth book, possibly I should have done her first because, you know, she's getting into those. But um, interestingly, when you think about having linked books and, and the different timeframes and the ages of your characters, it's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about that age factor when I did decide to write the four books. Yeah, it's interesting. I find the same thing that I want to write about characters that are at my age and stage. Um, and I, I think a lot of authors do that just because it's, it's more relatable in your own life. And um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like a 20 something is just so different from a 40 something. Um, but I really liked how in Magpie's Bend, your two um, main characters are love interests at a different stage of their life. They've got baggage and I think that's always really interesting to read about and possibly to write about for you. Yeah, I think so. Thanks, Vanessa. I do find, you know, probably there's a, a third of my friends that were married at a similar time as me that are now, you know, that next stage of their life where they've got children, they've either got new partners or they're single again mm. and and I think um, there's a lot of scope to write about you know the lovely stories that can come out of finding love the second time around it's um, not all necessarily doom and gloom I think it's nice to be able to kind of give people that have had a rough time uh, that that second chance at you know working towards a, a happier life yeah um, so with the next sister um you're working on that book now, are you? Yes, the manuscript, I'm on the second draft at the moment. And it's funny because you get to the stage where you think, oh my goodness, how could anyone possibly read this? It's just such a hot mess. There's characters doing this over here and we've got someone, you know, we haven't even heard from this character for five <laughs> chapters. Who the hell is he? And, and what do we call him? Is he granddad? Is he pop? Is he popper? I've got no idea yeah. what that guy is called. You get to that stage where you do, you get oh, so nervous. Oh, you just don't know whether you've, you've covered it or whether you've um, not introduced a character. But it's at the stage where I'm just about in the next couple of days going to print the whole thing out and mm -hmm. read it through. I feel like I've done a fair bit of um, editing. I've added another oh, probably about 15,000 words over the last couple of months <laughs> mm -hmm. to the first draft and taken That's out huge. a heap of words yes yeah, so I'm sewing it back together at the minute and so far <laughs> it looks like it's making sense as one fluent story which is you know all you can hope for really absolutely so your first draft sound like they're a little messy is that the way you tend to write yeah they are they're all over the place i I started out the book not knowing what occupation my main male character would have and I just put XXX anytime I talked about his job, knowing that by the time I got to the end of the story, I'd have a clear idea of what he did. And I can just fill in the, you know, his late nights doing paperwork, you know, in whatever field it is. So at that stage of the first draft, all I need to know is that he's a man and he has got <laughs> many children and he's moving to Bridgefield and this is his journey, but little extra points like what their occupation is, that doesn't really matter until a lot later in the first draft. And then I decided right at the end of the first draft what he was, 
So when I went back to working on the second draft, I could just kind of patch up that little thing and um, fill in what's needed with his backstory professionally. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? When you are writing a draft, you're just feeling your way in the dark and that just rang true for me too. I write, I write notes to myself saying, I don't know who this character is. I don't know why they're here. Come back and work this out later. <laughs> and it's, it's just, and then you come back later and think, I still don't know. Um, it's, yeah, it's a pretty crazy um, process, isn't it? Just finally finding out, yeah, what the job is of your main character. Um yeah, do you, do you find that um, as you write, it sort of just evolves through being immersed in the story? How do things come to you like that? I think that that's true. I think that does, you know, things, you, you start with a tiny little speck of dust and by the time you've gotten to that end of the manuscript, it's it's rolled and it's a proper, you know, furball mm. type of thing. It's um, <laughs> snowballed and collected little pieces of lint as it went. Um, yeah. So I do think that things do become clearer and you can make some really interesting um, adjustments. I needed at the end of the story, I knew who he was. I needed to know that his bank account could handle, you know, a short sabbatical. I needed to know that his work could handle a bit of travel here, there and everywhere. So there's a few mm -hmm. different little factors and then it just ding, falls into place. Oh, that's what yeah. he's going to do. He's going to be a pharmacist. Yeah. So, Isn't that and the I, most amazing feeling, that ding? <laughs> It is, it is. And I, I can picture where I was when I decided that he was going to be a pharmacist. I think I was in the garden weeding or pruning. <laughs> so I was doing something productive and just letting yeah. that those ideas kind of roll around. And I mm -hmm. feel really excited when I wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night with a little aha moment like that. Mm -hmm. So I do it's so good. little things that come to you when your brain's just doing its own little work behind the scenes, you know, you're toiling away at the computer trying to get the nuts and bolts of the thing, but your brain's yeah. still thinking about it after hours, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. So you have your little epiphanies in the garden, do you? I do in the garden, um, you know, out walking when I'm walking the dog along the beach. Sometimes, often I'll have podcasts in, but then I do find it's that time when the podcast is finished and there's still 10 minutes before my timer goes off that I'm going to turn around and start heading back for home. And mm. I think, oh, well, I'll just listen to the ocean for a little bit or I'll, I'll be down the laneway and I'll just listen to the cows for a little bit. Those are some of the best little um, thinking yeah. moments that will just pop out, which is very handy. Yeah. So with, um, with Toby, your male character in Magpie's Bend, he is a rural journalist. So I imagine that that came pretty early in the piece to you, given that him being there with the paper is sort of integral to the whole story. It came a bit yes. earlier, this, that one, I imagine. Yes, in Magpie's Bend, I had Toby's occupation pretty early on, which was really neat because... I remember reading a Barbara Hannay novel a couple of years back and it had a country journalist as the main character. And as I was reading it, I emailed her to say, Barbara, I can smell the printing ink of my old office where I used to work because it was a newspaper that did their own printing. And it just gave me this real um, desire to make sure that at one stage I'm writing a country mm. journalist because I can feel it, I can smell it, I can mm. picture myself. And in the scenes where Toby is writing... You know, 
I'm just closing my eyes and thinking of what my office looked like. Oh, yes, there's that pile of newspapers over there and there's my pin board with a couple of different things and my old address book and the 20 million coffee cups. I mean, it's not that different from my office here, but <laughs> I was able to just think of my old newspaper office and the pot plant that I pour my cup of teas into when they were cold. Uh, it's just really nice to be able to put little things, memories um, that you yeah. that are special to you into books. Absolutely. I think the reader can feel that kind of thing as well. It feel, feels really authentic. Um, so how, how, many, how long did you work as a rural journalist for? Yeah, so that was in my early 20s and it was a lovely time. It was a beautiful little country-owned newspaper. Uh, there were two other journalists and an editor and I was the youngest by about 30 years. So I got to do the jobs that, you know, the older blokes weren't that keen on. They're like, oh, can you just go to the school and, and talk to the new teacher about why they've moved out here and, and what their background is and what project they're working on in the class? Oh, yeah, sure, no worries. Oh, so off I'd go and do these fun little stories that, you know, they'd prefer to do the football report or the front page story about the new council rate scheme. Whereas for me, I'm like, yes, please give me the schools, give me the farming stories. I'll go out to the cattle yard. No worries. <laughs> oh, it's gorgeous. And it's so, it's so lovely to read about it because so few of those papers remain now. So many have closed, um, which is really quite sad for the communities, isn't, isn't it? Oh, it is. And we had uh, last year the newspaper that I worked for closed down during oh. all that COVID time as well. So it would, I'd already written the story Magpie's Bend by then, but I just thought it was really bittersweet because a lot of people rely on those small newspapers to bring them local mm. content instead of just, you know, city headlines and yeah. the next closest metro town. So when you do lose those small newspapers, you lose an absolutely mm. amazing amount of local knowledge and yeah. local awareness of things that are important and not just the issues but the people, the features on the mm. people highlighting the, the community members that have volunteered or the people that are doing mm. well. It's one of those things that you kind of can't really get back. Yeah, and... That's why your books are so loved in the rural communities of Australia, I imagine, because you've got such a loyal sort of fan base um, locally to where you live and in a lot of other country towns. Um, that must be really lovely to connect with people that do live on the land and read your books. It is. It's one of the nicest things to kind of head down the street to take the kids to swimming lesson and someone will come up and say, oh, Maya. I just finished reading your book and good on you for putting in the Portland Three Bays Marathon Fun Run because, you know, little things like that are so easy just to slip in and it doesn't matter to 90% of Australia which marathon I've referenced in the story but yeah. to all the people that I know that have ever run the Portland Three Bays Marathon and it is the hilliest, toughest course. I've done half of it myself. So it's just those little things that you can kind of pop in that, you know, it, it doesn't impact anyone else, but it will, I know it will make a few of the local readers smile. So it is, it's a real treat to be able to drop in little town names and little events mm. that are just local and special. Um, and, and they don't hold up the story. They're not something that I'm, you know, saying go down to Portland and enroll yourself in the three days marathon. It's not like I'm trying to officially yes. drum up business for the town, <laughs> but it is nice <laughs> to be able to just pop them in there. 
your love of nature um, and your sense of place is really strong in these books and like the town is almost like a character um and I really love this because I think I I try and do that sort of thing in my novels as well that sense of place um how important is it to you evoking place in your books I think you do do that really well Vanessa I love the different settings and it is so neat when it is like its own character that actual setting I think you do that well and I think readers quite like that feeling of immersion don't they that they're in mm. this town and they know it and they they feel the sense of the the mountains on the horizon or in your case you know the mountains are right there um mm. it's it's very important to me to kind of put in the different things that i can feel like makes our region our region like that smell when you're mm. walking down the road and and you know if it's been rainy you can smell that foggy smell in the paddocks mm. and if yeah. it's been really rainy at the moment the frogs are going crazy here we've had quite a bit of rain in our paddocks I'm just looking at them now there's lots of water laying around so anytime we walk down the paddocks it's just this chorus of frogs just singing this beautiful symphony beautiful and so kind of weaving those little things in um, as well as some of the, the trickier times you know it's not all beer and skittles so you've got to kind of temper the actual reality and Mm. You know, there's a scene in there where the, there's a calf that's stuck in a mother cow and everybody has to get on board. And Toby, the journalist who's from Ballarat, which is a regional city, hasn't done much of the actual rural hands-on stuff. So it's a bit of a shock to him to have to go along. And, you know, in that story, the calf lives, they, they winch it out. It's a mm-hmm. very interesting process. I've been um, deep in, in trying to get calves out before. <laughs> but, wow. you know, it doesn't always end nicely. And, yeah. I, you know, there's lots of different bits that you kind of think, well, should I put that in? Should I put mm. bits about snakes in that are a very, very serious mm. reality here? I mean, we get yeah. about four snakes a year, tiger snakes or brown snakes on our doorstep. So I kind of have these different elements of uh, dangers within our rural community because it is. It's the type of things that we talk about when we go to the post office. Oh, how many snakes have you had this year? Oh, I've only had three so far. <laughs> and there's that amazing scene where the family's doing the the meat day where they're packing all the meat. And, I mean, as a city person, it's just it's like, wow, you have like a whole day where you pack meat, right? Okay. <laughs> it's it's actually great it's a huge day it's you take that out of you are ready to sit down with your feet up after you've spent your whole day <laughs> packing cutting mincing dicing weighing bagging and then all those uh, loads of mince and steak and chops that you're taking to the freezer and then the next day it's you know making the sausages so it's like it's a huge process and it's just really nice to be able to share these different things uh, with readers that perhaps you know haven't seen inside a meatpacking day yeah it was fantastic <laughs> <laughs> um, your love of food and cooking also really comes out in this book um, you obviously are a baker yourself um, I love it how Lara just has like a mental breakdown and then she's like I've got to bake something um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah is, is that something that you're sort of aware of how much you put sort of the food and 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 that sort of thing into the books yes I do feel like that's one of the things that 
you know, as, as with the other different topics, I like doing it. So I like writing about it. And mm. it, sometimes it is a I like reading effort. about it, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> because I do feel like in the country communities, if you are going to a friend's house, you're generally going to have something lovely. Like we have the nicest neighbours that will drop over a sponge cake or Aww. beautiful slices you know, at least once a month, we'll have a beautiful delivery from one of our neighbours of something beautiful they've made oh. just as a thank you for something. We might have traded them some rhubarb over the fence or we might have tossed some jam in their direction when we had a huge batch or some eggs if we were overflowing, which happens on a regular basis at the moment. So it's oh. this beautiful bartering that you do in country communities. Yeah. And if it's gorgeous. The events that I had in country Queensland earlier with the book tour before that kind of all um, got waylaid with COVID, mm. the the best catering I've ever had. The CWA ladies <laughs> did the event at the Proston Library and it was just oh. magnificent. So I think it's one of those things that really is a hallmark of country communities, that beautiful cooking and, and love of cooking. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. I was always like thinking, um, I'm just going to sit down with Maya's book and a cup of tea and I think I need a snack. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the amazing, um, sort of self-promotion that you do because, um, you have newsletters and you're really good at involving your readers. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for authors to do all this sort of stuff in an, in an authentic way. Um, but you do manage that. Um, do you have any tips for, for authors on on how to self-promote in an authentic way yeah thank you Vanessa look I love taking photos and that was one of the things in the newspaper that they gave me free reign to take as many photos as I wanted for any articles Uh, so I definitely love taking photos and I think it's just a really nice way I do have the best readers as well you're right I've got some beautiful Mm -hmm. readers that will write regularly and say, oh, I've just finished the novel or I've just got my hands on the novel and how about, you know, that storyline? I, I know someone who's done that same thing and had this similar mm-hmm. outcome. So there's some beautiful conversations that come into my inbox and I'm so grateful for mm-hmm. every one of them. But I think for me it's just trying to work out the things that I like that I write about that kind of have a little bit of connection to the book. So I chose the the branding, I guess you'd say, of writer Baker Green Thumb really early on in my journey. And for mm. me, that is the best decision to, to think about, okay, what is it about my life and my books that mm. I've got in common? Yeah. And so I was able to, you know, just those three different words, and I think it was from some author marketing Instagram account that I was following really early on in the piece, and she, she mm. did talk about that Instagram bio you've only got I don't know 25 words or something you need to have a bit of a clue as to what you're about so when people decide whether to follow you or not they know what they're going to get and so those three Mm. pillars I will fall back on if I think oh what should I post today should I do a picture of the lambs should I do some biscuits that I've recently made what about you know the roses in my garden okay well let's have a little look Maya you've posted five lamb pictures in the last week no more lamb pictures for a while you need to remind people that you're right more lambs (laughs) I love the lambs (laughs) I love the lambs too they are the sweetest thing to be able to share they are just magical (laughs) your Instagram is lovely it's just 
it's like a shot of joy every picture (laughs) (laughs) well that's lovely to hear it's uh, nice to be able to make people smile and you know I try and stay clear I'm not a political animal I don't um, Mm. have too much time to to dwell on political matters so I don't post Mm -hmm. about those type of things I I do the things that bring me joy and it seems Mm. like it brings other people joy too so I'll keep going with it it does it does um now tell us what your writing day looks like because you obviously got this property you've got three kids I mean how do you carve out time to write well it was a lot more disciplined before last year so Mm -hmm. previously last year I would get the kids off to school write very dedicated um, between nine o'clock and one o'clock, really glued to the computer, no socials, mm-hmm. no newsletter stuff, no Canva, mm. um, no book review stuff. I just stick with the writing. But mm. the problem was that when lockdown hit and we, we got into the first and the second and now the fifth round of online mm. learning, I found it a yeah. little bit trickier to focus. And I mm. think that seems to be a bit of a common thing that, um, you know, you, you're having a look at the news to see what the numbers are yeah, and you're yes. looking at different things so you're distracted more easily. So I have to spend more time sitting in the chair like that whole day pretty much um, mm-hmm. at the moment. So this morning I kind of did some book review stuff this morning. I worked on some events that I'm rescheduling, uh, mm. spoke to a couple of librarians, chased up some media releases to see whether it went into print last week, which it did, um, mm. toddled off to the post office to pick up some books, went out to pat the lands and hang some washing. So it hasn't been a particularly productive writing day today because <laughs> yeah. I've been a bit scattered and the kids are just back yeah. at school. Um, I do have that manuscript due to my publisher very shortly as well. So I can see the end, that, like the light mm. is inside at the end of the tunnel at the minute. So I'm very close to, to printing it out, mm. but um, I need to instill a bit more discipline. One of the things that I found last year with the online learning and the no space and children in the house was I would drive mm. down the paddock in the car <laughs> with my laptop on my knee and the cows just walking oh, past me. Why is the car in the middle of the paddock? With no power, no phone, I'd leave the phone at home, no internet, and just Mm. get it done. So I might need to. That's a great idea. Slap myself over the wrist again and say, Maya, get in the car, take that laptop down there, and you're not coming back for morning tea or to, you know, check socials until you've done X amount of words or, you know, reviewed another chapter. And my neighbour knows when I'm on deadline when she sees that car down the paddock. Oh, that's gorgeous. No, I think it's so true. You have to actually carve out a mental space as well as a physical space because otherwise you just kind of can't get into the zone. Um, And if all these other things are competing, um, it's really hard. But I think I don't know about for you, but if I'm in an editing stage, it's slightly easier. If I'm in the first draft creating the story, it's so hard um, if you don't have that mental and physical space from other people to just get the words out and be in that really creative frame of mind. I agree, Vanessa. And I think Stephen King said that that writing that first draft with the door closed and then editing with the door open. It does. It relates, doesn't it? You don't want those distractions when you're first drafting. It's it's very tricky. So, yeah, I think taking yourself away to a nice quiet room where you can shut the door is perfect. 
And I do have moments where I'm very disciplined uh, and I know that that will come back because very soon I'll start writing book five. So I'll need that focus mm. again. Um, but, yeah, look, at the moment having little lambs that need feeding three times a day is a little bit of a lovely distraction. It's Aww. blue skies here at the moment. It's not pouring with rain. So it's quite a joy to go out in the middle of the day and, and just give them some yeah. milk and, and make sure they're going okay. Oh, that's gorgeous. So book five next, do you have a five book contract? Is is it more of the same family? No. So next book is a completely different uh, setting, characters, all a whole new ball game. So the oh, wow. when I first signed with Alan and when I signed a two book contract and mm-hmm. then I received my third book contract in 2019, and then last year I signed another two-book contract, so The End of the McIntyre Sisters, which yep. is next year's book, and then starting on something completely fresh. Which, oh, wow, uh, that'll be exciting. It is. It's both exhilarating and terrifying because I, I know my world of Bridgefield. I know my people. I know who yeah. they're going to bump into at the shop. But then yeah. also it does have its limits because you already know so much about the characters and their history, so you can't kind of come out with the blue out of the blue with a, a second cousin or mm. a missing husband or anything like that so yeah. the idea of that complete freedom is quite liberating as well yeah so will you it'll be rural romance as well setting yeah yeah definitely oh, rural wow. romance uh but i'm thinking maybe it'll have a vineyard so rather than oh. A family farm maybe there's a, a vineyard in there I've been talking to a friend who's a viticulturist it's really handy to have friends in different directions that can help you out with things having um, wine in a book is always a good idea <laughs> look you know if I have to sample some of the produce just to make sure it's going to be completely authentic then so be it I will do that research Vanessa don't you worry <laughs> we're relying on you tell us what you've read lately or what you're reading that's inspired you I love a good book. So I generally get through about a book a week. I've got, I've just finished Minette Walter's new book, which comes out with Alan Unwin in November, and it's called The Swift and the Harrier. Now, I haven't read any Minette Walters. I've seen her books in bookshops, uh, but this one was sent to me by my publisher, and she thought I'd like an early copy, and that was a really interesting read. Back, back. I've also just finished Thursdays at Orange Blossom House by Sophie Green. Ah, uh, yes. And she wrote the Fairvale Ladies Book Club and the Shelley mm. Bay Ladies Swimming Circle, which I really enjoyed both those books. So that was a nice one to be able to sink my teeth into as well. I think she writes beautiful Australian stories, very nostalgic. Also just started just yesterday over my lunch, started reading The Eighth Wonder, which is a debut novel by Tania Farrelly, oh, yes. set in New York, very engrossing already. And do you find that... Um... I mean, you obviously keep reading while you're writing. There are some authors that don't read as much when they're writing, but um, do you sort of find inspiration in reading other authors' books? Yes, I will look at a sentence and go, oh, my goodness, that is magic. Shut the book. How can Mm. I possibly compete with that? (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing because it's like judging your outsides to somebody else's insides, you know, yeah. You can appreciate that there's so much work that goes on behind the scenes to get that book to the, the quality that it is when it actually hits the bookshelves. And so it yeah. can be inspiring because you'll want to try and do well and you'll think, oh, gosh, 
Sophie did a beautiful job of the dynamics between the son and the mother and the family farm and the beautiful yoga teacher that's such a wise, wise woman that guides them throughout this whole story. And that will encourage you to think about, well, hold on, with my characters, do I have any wise person in my whole story that's kind of overseeing? You know, who do I have that's the champion that props them up? So I definitely, I'm not going to slip in a yoga teacher called Sandrine, like in the Thursdays at Orange Blossom House, but I'll certainly, it made me think about my cast of characters and across them in general. Well, who's the champion? Who's the person that's standing up and and encouraging Mm. them to go on? Yeah, I find the same. It's, It's sort of almost an unconscious learning that happens when you read other people's books. Um, and then you sort of sit back and think, ah, oh, now why did that make me cry? And with each book that really inspires you, as an author, it just sort of spurs you on to um, challenge yourself more um, and try something different. Or it's, I think it's integral to the whole writing process, actually. Um, I feel like we could chat about lambs and baking and writing for another hour, but... <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Maya. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Magpie's Bend is out through Allen and Unwin and can be found in all good bookstores and online. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vanessa. It's lovely being your guest. And thanks to Danny for letting us take over the Words and Nerds podcast. You probably hear the lambs in the background crying for their dinner as we were at the last bit of our conversation there. So ready to go off and make some bottles. Happy lamb feeding. <laughs> thank you for listening to the words and nerds podcast we'd love to engage with you on social media you can find the podcast on facebook instagram and twitter danny v books words and nerds podcast you can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts stay safe and read more books.